0: You're ready, let's get into the book of Romans. And last time I started to give you an example from the life of Paul that looks at maturity. Maturity is a beautiful thing, right? Whether you see it in a creature that God has designed, as I'm using as kind of that applicational slide, a butterfly that goes through different stages. And when it matures, it becomes this full blown beautiful creature. And that's at its peak of its existence. That's an illustration of maturity. Last night I saw a team, another living organism, (laughs) coming to maturity it seemed like. They played the best game of the the season, beat probably, arguably, the best team in our conference. So the defense came together, the offense came together, special teams came together. So maturity is a beautiful thing, we see it. So also, I think, at least in the eyes of God, but also I think in the eyes of the world as well, when a believer is in even early stages of maturity, now we never arrive until we are glorified, that is the ultimate point of maturity, but we are in the process of maturing as believers, and that's a beautiful thing, so we want to know what it takes to get there, where are we aiming at, and I think Paul is a good illustration, so let's take a look at that. And we'll concentrate on the last part of this paragraph that begins in verse 8, goes through verse 15, and we started uh, those earlier verses the last two weeks. Now I'm showing a photograph of Corinth because this is where Paul is when he's writing this letter. He's at Corinth and he's writing to the Romans and the passage itself is focusing on the plans that Paul has to visit the Romans. But in those plans, this is where he's at. He's at the city of Corinth, and there's a lot of archaeological sites. In fact, that's one of the most excavated places in the first century in terms of New Testament cities. So, important archaeological site, Temple of Apollo, other excavations, location. Another shot of Corinth, And some cities have a mountain or a mound at least where in ancient times, oftentimes the cities were built on them and in cases where it was too small to build a city, they would at least build temples and other important structures, mainly temples up there. So Corinth has Acro-Corinth and at the top of it there are remains from ancient, even before first century temples. And temples obviously on the site at the bottom, which in the city where Paul would have been as he writes this letter. Just an archaeological artifact that you might note in Acts at Corinth. It makes reference to the Bema. The Bema means what? How's it translated in the English Bible? Judgment seat, which is for believers. That's future. Now the imagery, remember I've also said in many of our studies, when you study New Testament words, look at how was that word used in that culture, what was the meaning, including and particularly theological terms, theological terms, in fact all terms, are brought from the culture. The Greek of the first century is called Koine Greek. People speak Greek today, that's modern Greek. It's a little bit different, slightly different. People spoke what's called classical Greek, four, five hundred, three hundred years before Christ. So Greek has kind of changed, you might even say, I hate to use the word evolve, but it's changed over time. During the New Testament, that period is called Koine. The New Testament uses Koine Greek. That's common everyday Greek, what people spoke. So the writers are not using some spiritual language that is only known by those that know the spiritual words. They take words from the culture. One of them is bema. And what the bema was in the first century was a judgment seat. That's why it's translated in that way. And judgments would be effected from a place, a platform like this. And remember in Acts 18, Paul is before the bema. That word is used in that context. In verse 12, Paul is standing before a judge and he is pronouncing judgment upon him, and he's standing right in front of that artifact there. That's the bema. So that's the place of writing of the book of Romans, and in the passage we're looking at, Paul desires eventually to visit the city of Rome, and from the passage it seems like this has been a desire throughout perhaps his uh, entire ministry, but because of the situation he's not going to be able to do it, On this occasion, so he does the second best thing, writes a letter. And we benefit from that because this is probably the essence of the theology that Paul would have taught while he was at Rome had he made the trip. And I think deliberately God delayed him in his sovereignty so he would write this letter under inspiration so that we would have it here this morning, this Sunday, last Sunday of November. So that's kind of the background. We're taking what Paul reveals to us in this passage in terms of just revealing his plans and we're looking at little indications in there in terms of mindset, his thoughts, his spirituality and we can recognize that there are some examples in terms of Paul and his life that teach us something about what maturity looks like. Obviously, Paul being an apostle, being one that in the first century would have been looked up to, would have been a leader, exhibits the characteristics of spiritual maturity. So that's what we're looking at, is spiritual maturity, and I pulled out nine signs of real maturity, and I mentioned last time the creator of that graphic probably didn't have spiritual things in mind, but... We'll kind of apply it in that area. So we're looking at still the introduction. We've gone through the formal introduction. We're in the personal introduction. And in that personal introduction, we've looked at verses 8 through 10. These are the praising prayers of Paul. Now we use that as an illustration of Paul in terms of prayer. Now, Paul is not teaching on prayer, but there are some elements in that that give us little hints again of Paul's prayer life, and we drew those out. Now, it doesn't give us a complete pattern, as we keep referring to Amanda. She's not here this morning, apparently. But she asked about confession. Well, it's not in the context, so I didn't use it as an illustration of one of the elements. I didn't claim that it was complete or exhaustive, and that is an important element of prayer as well. But there are some others that we did bring out in terms of Paul praying, and it's focused on praise. And then we began last week to draw from that same passage other examples of spiritual maturity. And we can go back to verse 8, and the example is that we, as believers, should be, develop the attitude of being thankful in every circumstance. And Paul does that in verse 8. He gives this illustration of himself. So anyway, first thing that we can observe in Paul, and like I said, he's not talking per se on spiritual maturity. He's laying out his plans, but we're drawing by way of application some of these things that we can observe. So thankfulness, no matter what circumstance, that's a characteristic of spiritually mature believers. They can look at things from God's perspective and realize that God is working, like Romans eight twenty eight, all things for good for those that are called according to his purpose. And if he's working all things for good, then we can look at even the most horrendous of circumstances and realize that God is sovereign over it. It's going to end, and God is even going to use it in some way in my life for good, so we can praise him for it. And that's what Paul does. He would prefer to visit the Romans, but because he can't, he still praises God anyway. The second thing in verse 9 is he is persistent in prayer. That's the emphasis there, and the first part of even verse 10. He is persistent in prayer. A person that is spiritually true has a persistent prayer life, or a consistent one, and even one that is biblical. We're encouraged to be persistent pray without ceasing, right? then in verse 10, we can observe that the reason he didn't go to Rome at the occasion that he thought that he would want to is because he recognized that it was not in God's will. So verse 10 emphasizes that aspect in terms of an example there. So he's controlled by God's will. And that is an element that is part of spiritual maturity. We decide all of our decisions in terms of what would God desire, whether it be a journey like Paul to Rome, or whether it be buying something, or whether it be pursuing something, is this part of what God would have for me, buying the house, or selling it, whatever, we evaluate it based on whether or not this is within God's will, spiritually matured. So these are things, if most of you are well on your way to maturity, but you had any questions on that, these are three things in those first verses in that passage. The next part of the passage deals with purposeful plans. 11 through 15, we looked at 11 and 12 last time, which is his productive desire to visit. If you haven't figured it out, I can use P's throughout this, to alliterate. And in verse 12, For I long to see you. That's the beginning. And that pretty much controls everything that he says from the beginning to end. That little phrase, his desire, strong desire to visit them. And that's the first independent clause of that first sentence all the way to the end of verse 12. So that not only controls 11 and 12, the whole sentence, but it controls the whole paragraph. He's just going to elaborate on it. And last time we saw a series of subordinate clauses. Most of them are purpose clauses. That's why I call it purposeful plans. First, he has a strong desire, but he has a purpose. It's not a social trip. It's not to go out and have a good time. It has definite spiritual and productive or purposeful plans that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. And then another one that you may be established. So he's interested in their spiritual growth and their spiritual maturity. Verse 12, that is that I may be encouraged together with you. He's going to benefit from the trip. And then he concludes with another subordinate clause, While well, among you, each of us, by the others, both yours and mine. So it kind of adds to the benefit that Paul anticipates by visiting them. So, And he's talking in terms of spiritual growth here, including his own. So we saw some other examples that longing implies a deep love for them. In other words, he has a deep love that he wants to be with them. It's a love that has their best interest in view and has purpose behind it. And uh, that's a characteristic of spiritual maturity, a person that can love other believers and even unbelievers as well, even though he's addressing the believers in this context. From verse 11, we can also see that he has a heart for ministry. In other words, that's his purpose. He wants to minister to them and be ministered back. And a spiritually mature person has a focus on organizing all of their life around this idea of how do I strengthen or how do I encourage the body of Christ, how do I minister to other believers particularly, and even how do I minister to the unbeliever as well. So number five on our list, and also last time in verse 12, it reflects that uh, he's not this super apostle that is just going to give them everything. He anticipates in humility. He anticipates being benefited himself. He anticipates them ministering back to himself. So he has a humble attitude as well. He anticipates because he knows from spiritual maturity When you minister to others, you benefit as well. If your heart attitude is to benefit them, God blesses you on the way. And that's just a natural byproduct of ministry. So he has a humble attitude, and a person of spiritual maturity is someone that has humility. So these are the applications that we drew from the passage. And again, the passage is not teaching spiritual maturity per se, We're drawing these out from the passage from Paul's life as an example. Make sense? Okay. We also said maturity is not measured by age just because a person is old. In fact, there's the unfortunate thing about the church today is there's people, hundreds and thousands of people that have been in church, been in the pews for years and years and years, and they're not spiritually mature because they're not in the Word they're not taught the Word, and they're not emphasizing spiritual growth. So maturity is not measured by age. It's an attitude, something you must build upon. It's something that you must put some effort into in order to grow to maturity. Just like the illustration I used at the beginning, the football team didn't just all of a sudden happen to mature. It put in a whole season of defeats, And victories and effort, in fact, much effort, coordination, took a lot of effort to get to the point that they got to last night. So you just we just saw the I assume that most of you came in late were at the game and that's the reason you're late. So (laughs) we saw an example of a team coming together and when it came together it just blew out the other team. So it's an attitude built by experience. And that's a good description of maturity in any form, and particularly spiritual material. So, we're in verse 13, and that's where we left off last time. Not only does he have a productive desire to visit, verses 11 and 12, but he has persistent plans. Those plans go back in time and continue to the day that Paul writes. In verse 13, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren. In other words, if you're wondering why Paul hasn't visited the capital of the empire, the most important city in the first century, if they're sitting back just wondering, you know, why hasn't Paul been here? Or even Peter. I don't think Peter had been here at this stage in his ministry as well. They may have been sitting back wondering, and he says, I don't want you to be unaware. In other words, I want to reveal my heart to you. I want you to know. And he addresses them as brethren. And I made a big point in the introduction that he's writing to brethren. And that means he's writing to whom? Believers. When it's used in this in a context like this, it refers to brothers in Christ. We have spiritual kinship if you will or we're part of a family of God in a spiritual sense and he will use the word brethren in other contexts in the book of Romans i believe he's writing to christians and the reason i stressed it is there are some commentators and some bible teachers that think the book of romans is predominantly written to an unbelieving audience or at least a mixed audience Because he's dealing with the issues of how does a person come into a saving relationship. But I don't think he's doing it in order to reach an unbelieving audience. I think he is giving us the theology and the doctrine of soteriology. That's the theology or doctrine of salvation. I think he's doing that in order to equip the believers so that they can go out, they have a clear understanding of what it takes to come into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, with the creator of the universe, and then from that solid understanding, will be able to deliver a clear gospel message to an unbelieving world. So it's for believers so that they have the proper theology, the proper foundation to be able to reach a lost world. And little notes like this kind of give us clarity on the audience. I do not want you to be unaware of brethren. So he's writing to believers. And we have the content of what he wants to communicate to them. That, another one, another subordinate clause here, that often, that's why I use persistent plans. Often I plan to come to you. So this is not just a whim. Not just, oh, it'd be nice since I'm in Corinth, I'm I'm the closest I've been in a long time to Rome. It's not just, oh, this just occurred to him, now I'd like to make a trip. No, he has thought of it when he was in Jerusalem. He thought of it when he was on his first missionary journey. He thought of it at other times. He probably even thought of it shortly after his conversion in Acts chapter 9. He thought that perhaps his ministry would take him to the focal point and the center of the Gentile world when God revealed to him that his mission would be to the Gentiles. He would have wanted to go to the very heart of Gentile territory in the entire Roman Empire. So, he often planned to come. But, he says, and kind of parenthetically, have been prevented so far. So, as far as his plans he would have desired to go. But there are certain things that prevented him. What might have prevented him from Scripture? We have examples in other places of things that might occur to prevent an apostle, even, or even an everyday believer from doing something that perhaps they had planned. Connie? Say that again. places. Okay, I think that's part of it. I think other ministry or... Other direction, you might say. Dave, some other of spiritual forces. Spiritual forces, and more specifically, negative ones. Demonic, satanic. Yeah, I would say that. In fact, that's the first one on the list there. Say that again. Yes. God's will, controlling. Yeah. First Thessalonians 2.18. Someone want to see that one. Here's an example where Satan can be an instrument. And even an instrument of God to hinder certain plans. And somebody else, this is what I think Connie and David were referring to and some of the others, Acts 16, 6, and 7 is another passage. The Holy Spirit redirecting. And I think in that passage it's alluding to the Macedonian call. Somebody got that one. you uh, You got the first one. And I think in the book of Romans, by ministry as well. So somebody else can look up uh, chapter 15. First Thessalonians 2.18, you got it? Read it loud. Wherefore we would have come to an eye, Paul, that Satan hindered us. Okay. Paul had a desire, now in this case, to visit the Thessalonians, but Satan hindered him. So that's a possibility. But... In the sovereignty of God, behind all of that would be also God's will. But God can use whatever instrument he wants. And from Paul's perspective, it was a hindrance. Or a redirecting, at least. I got it? You got it? Six and seven. 16. 6 and 7. Yeah, that's the Macedonian call right there. And what they had gone through, here's the word in Egypt. Okay, the King James forbidden or hindered by the Holy Spirit. Keep reading. The Spirit suffered them not. Okay, the Spirit prevented them, hindered them, however you want to put it, redirected them. So that's Acts 16 6 and 7. And then the Romans passage, particularly applicable here, because it's another reference in the conclusion to the book, kind of a reminder of Paul's plans. And what does that say in verse 19, first of all? He's got it. Signs and wonders by the gospel of Christ. Okay, so Paul has been very active. He lists from one location to another location, kind of summarizing his overall ministry to this point at the writing of the book of Romans, and then skip to twenty-two and twenty-three because now he's going to talk about being delayed in the context of involvement in ministry. For this reason, I also. All right. Now no longer. <laughs> okay I think that answers what hindered in the passage that we're looking at and have been prevented thus far. Just, just all of the ministry that God has put on his plate and that's a good thing. In other words, when you evaluate, you might have plans to do certain things in terms of even good things and you had good things in mind here. But God had better things. In other words, he had other plans. He had other things that had priority over visiting even the center of Gentile activity. Mal? We that. Absolutely. Good good passage there. Say it again. Man plans his ways and Lord directs his steps. Proverbs. Very good. And we have another little note concerning what he wants to accomplish there so that I may obtain some fruit among you. Now, he's already talked about spiritual input and probably alluding to teaching and other things, other ministry in, in Rome. And he re-emphasizes it in verse 13, so that I may obtain some fruit among you. Now, what do you think he's referring to there? And then the last part there, also even among the rest of the Gentiles. So he has Gentiles on his mind here. What do you think he has in view in terms of fruit? I think most of the commentators jump to the idea of evangelism. And that's probably in his thinking, but I think it's secondary. Because if you do a word study on the word fruit, it includes all the spectrum of what God may want to accomplish. And in more context than not, when it uses the word fruit, it has the idea of ministering to believers. And here's just an example of a few passages where that word that is in this context is used in just any general, either general good or bad. Also in the book of Romans, 6.21 and 22. David, you got that one? For the end of those things is death, but now being made free from sinners to God, ye are fruit There it is. Fruit unto holiness. Kind of a general good. Coming out of general bad. In other words, all our lives produced was bad. Bad fruit. And salvation brings us into another realm where now we can produce good fruit. Holiness or general goodness. It's kind of been used in a very general sense in that context. The end, life. The end everlasting life. And it's not talking about just salvation. It's talking everything in between. Uh, we receive eternal life the moment we trust in Jesus Christ. It can include even financial things. And I just throw that up there because it doesn't necessarily just include spiritual, non-visible things. It can include tangible, physical support. Now, we won't look up Philippians 5.17, but if you read Romans 15.28 and read the whole context, Connie's got it. Therefore, when I give you to Spain... Yeah, now if you look at the context... Compared to the book of Acts, he's talking about the fruit of a financial support that uh, the Corinthians are going to give to the church in Jerusalem. And so also Philippians 4.17, in that context, speaks of money as fruit. In other words, contributions that are going to support the ministry. So it can include that. It could also include just the development of character. Development of character. And most of you are familiar with Galatians 5.22. What is that context? The, the fruit of the Spirit. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, <laughs> peace. All right. all right. Character development. <laughs> Produced by the Holy Spirit. Very good. And it uses the carpas, The word fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. Ephesians 5.9. So you want to do that one. And Philippians one eleven. Jenny, which one you got? Philippians? Somebody Connie, you got five nine? Okay, <clears throat> again, fruit of the spirit, righteousness, goodness. Jenny, you got Philippians one eleven? Having been Fruit of righteousness. And since you're in Philippians one, skip down to verse twenty two and twenty one. So it can include character development. It can include the things that is the product of salvation. Got it? Fruitful labor. Fruitful labor. Now, he says to go to be with the Lord, in other words, to die, is better for him because he enters into the immediate presence of God and is glorified. But in that context, you're familiar, I'm sure, with that context, it's better that he stay and minister to the Philippians because it can produce fruit. And I think that's the idea that we have here in Romans chapter 1. Which leads us, remember last time I introduced you in this passage, also we have all these phases of ministry. Paul illustrates that he wants to bring blessing to the Romans that edifies them. And we also saw that's kind of a general idea as well in that context, 11 and 12. Just general blessing that encourages them, that edifies them, that builds them up. It's kind of the bottom line of ministry, but it also has the goal of grounding people in the Word to be established, verse 13, to establish people in the faith. And that takes time. That takes lots of input, grounding in the Word, lots of teaching, lots of Bible study. You don't become familiar and grounded in the Word immediately. It takes a process of time. But that's part of Paul's goal there that he may establish them. In other words, move them further along. And As he spent time in Rome, he would want to do that and lay out the principles that they can take with them after he leaves to continue in their spiritual growth until they are grounded in the word. So that's how I summarize establishing them. We also saw that when ministry takes place and people grow, people minister back to those that are giving out the ministry. And that's verse uh, 12, the ministry return. And when that happens, then those that are being grounded are beginning to exercise their gifts and beginning to reach out to even those that have ministered to them. And that's what Paul anticipated. So that's a phase of ministry. Paul had a great story from Lemo and how she could minister. And so they put her to work. She could do because she wanted to get back. Yeah. And and that's a natural desire that God produces in people that receive ministry. They are thankful, and they want to reach out and minister to others. And that was probably an encouragement to Roxanne and Rico. Now, what's the fourth phase that we have here? I think it's expanded fruitfulness. You have a core group of people that are grounded and established and are starting to exercise their spiritual gifts... And now that's going to extend to a broader exercise of gifts in a more broad way. Broadway. (laughs) In a more expanded way, such that the Roman church is now going to probably reach out to other communities, other people in the Empire of Rome. This is part of Paul's thinking. So he's thinking long term, he's thinking big picture. That's spiritual maturity. He has vision. He knows what God can do no matter where you minister. This is kind of the phases that God does in terms of ministry. So expanded fruitfulness, I I see, is kind of another phase that Paul has in mind here. That's why I call it purposeful plans. And we can say this is the desire of the spiritually mature to have that vision and to have that desire that it's going to go beyond just Sunday morning it's going to go into the community. It's going to have an impact on others. As you mature, then uh, you will also take that and disciple and evangelize and minister to other people. In 7, he understands this. As an Absolutely. It goes far beyond him. In fact, one that I don't have on the slide there, but another characteristic of spiritual mature is people... Our, what's the word in terms of ourselves? We don't think of ourselves. We're thinking always outwardly in terms of other. Selflessness—the word I'm thinking of—selfless attitude. It's part of the attitude there: humble and selfless. Jenny, I can comment on your what happens in, in a crystal. Is isn't just those? So it's okay, the a transformation. Mm-hmm. right. We aren't just a person. Mm-hmm. A new person in Christ. Very good. Malcolm illustration of a uh, transformed. Mm-hmm. Metamorphosed. Metamorphosed. Mm-hmm. So transformed. That's maturity. So that's an illustration. That's why I chose that graphic, by the way. Just an illustration of uh, maturity. Very good. So a desire for kind of a big picture, long-term, beyond-today attitude in terms of vision, in terms of what ministry is going to produce. A mark of maturity, spiritual maturity. And again, age is just a number good to know, right? When you're 98 like me. Maturity is a choice. Again, it's an attitude. It's a choice. It just doesn't happen. It's something that we put effort into. Verse 14. The ministry that he has is preeminent ministry to Gentiles. That was his initial calling, is to a Gentile audience. Peter was the apostle to the Jewish audience. Paul is the apostle to the Gentile audience. That didn't mean he didn't minister to Jews. He went to the synagogue first and then when he got kicked out of the synagogue then he went to the Gentiles. So he had a, a vision in terms of God's priority, but he knew the emphasis would be Gentiles. So his mission is preeminent. That's illustrated in verse 14. I am under obligation. In other words, I'm indebted. Now again, this is a spiritual thing and it's comes out of thankfulness. It's not legalistic. It's because he is so gratified in what God has bestowed upon him by grace. It's a grace motivation. Because of what I have received, we sense a compulsion. and That might be a better way of describing the usage of the word in this context. The idea of a compulsion, almost a need, in other words, I'm restless, I'm, I'm unsettled until I can reach out. And he's obligated both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. What is he doing here? He's kind of giving you the ends here, the kind of like merisms, where you have one extreme and then you have the other extreme. Everything in between is the idea here. In other words, everyone that I'm going to encounter... Whether it be the Greeks, the Greeks would be the people within the Greek culture, the ones that knew their history, the ones that knew uh, Greek wisdom, that studied the classics, those that are refined, those that were educated in the culture, the Roman Empire culture. The barbarians would be who? (laughs) The other extreme, (laughs) extreme. Perhaps uneducated, somewhat crude, unmannered, anything outside of the Greek culture. It would be a foreigner that had no idea about Greek things and Greek culture and manners and that sort of thing. So it doesn't matter. You can be crude, barbarian. Are there any barbarians in our culture? There's a few here and there, right? So I think that's what he's doing. He's, he's giving kind of the extreme. The extreme of the cultured. he'll minister to them. But he'll also minister to those that are on the other extreme. And if that wasn't clear enough, the wise, in other words, those with Greek wisdom. The Greeks had wisdom. In fact, they're noted for that. Athens was the center. But it uh, permeated the empire. Greek culture. It was Hellenized. It even impacted Jewish people. There's Hellenistic Jews. And the other alternative, the foolish. The barbarians were without the Greek wisdom. Those that were lacking and generally what he's saying is, I want to minister to the whole, the whole community. I'm not restricting my ministry. And he feels a compulsion, an obligation to do that. So he's got a servant's approach. And that's an attitude of spiritual maturity. Servant's approach, a compulsion, regardless of what God presents to me, whether it be a prison community, or whether it be a poor community, or whether it be a rich community, whether it be the university where they are so-called wise, maybe not so wise, maybe only educated, whatever the community. He's not restricting himself. He's, he's just ready to minister. He's got a servant attitude. Whatever door God opens, and he's speaking in terms of why he wants to minister in Rome, because you had the spectrum in Rome. In Rome you had every conceivable mindset, every conceivable cultural person from background in the city of Rome, it was a microcosm of the whole empire. Similarly, on a university campus you can find the whole spectrum of people there as well. And a city the size of Albuquerque, same thing. So whoever we can encounter the Lord that the Lord opens to us be available. Then verse 15, he has passionate, he wants to do passionate preaching at Rome. He says that in verse 15. So those are his purposeful plans. His plans start with a productive desire to have ministry among them. And those plans have been persistent throughout his ministry, verse 13. And the priority or the preeminence, because that was his calling, is the Gentiles. That's verse 14. And verse 15, He has a passion that drives him to preach at Rome. And verse 15, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, the gospel in this context, I think he's using it because this is the essence of what he is presenting in the book of Romans. He's giving us the doctrine of the gospel. And when he's talking about preaching the gospel to the Romans, it's not because he thinks he's dealing with unbelievers per se. You might say he wants to gospelize them. In other words, indoctrinate them or ground them or establish them in the understanding of the gospel message. And I think that is the sense that he's using the word gospel here. And that's going to have... Ramifications, because the Romans are now going to, with their understanding of what it means in terms of soteriology to bring people into saving relationship, now they are going to go out and evangelize and spread that gospel message. So Paul, I think, is prioritizing the believers, but I'm sure while he's there, he's not going to limit himself to the believers as well. So I think it's used in that broader sense of gospelizing even believers but then presenting the saving message or the gospel to the world as he would walk the streets of Rome. Make sense? Somebody had a, a question? Quick- to, to take the gospel for him. Yes. Yeah, very good. So, he wants to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. That is his plan. That is his purposeful plans and that leads us to our number nine. Remember I said there's nine signs of spiritual maturity. An eagerness to use his gift and his calling. An eagerness to exercise the spiritual gift that God has given him. Every one of you has a spiritual gift. Every one of you that knows Jesus Christ, you have a gift. And as you mature, you're going to have a, a sense of obligation, You if you will or a compulsion to exercise that, to minister. That's what Paul had. And it's going to end in using spiritual gifts, whether it be with children, adults, or whatever area. It may be in evangelism. It may be to other believers primarily, whatever your calling may be. So those are your nine marks that are illustrated by Paul. The list is not exhaustive. There's others as well, but these are the ones that seem to pop up from the passage we've looked at. Closing thought here, every day, again, and every circumstance can be a step towards spiritual maturity, but what does it take? Not age, but... Choice. A, a choice and an attitude. So every day and every circumstance can be a step towards spiritual maturity, and if you're already oriented in that direction, you are thinking along the lines of what is today going to bring? It's not only going to bring me to maturity, but how can I bring others? It's up to you, Jacob. Father God, we before you once again as class and ask that as we go about our week, that Jesus Christ, amen. amen.